I realize that not everybody comes from the same background, and uh, not everybody's the same age, not everybody has the same tastes, preferences, and music, and sound. Um, I'll tell you what I've charged these guys with. You'll hear a little bit different sound each Sunday, and it depends on who's leading worship and uh, the dynamics of who's kind of involved in the, at least the musical portion of our worship. Uh, what, what I hope you know and appreciate is that they are singing from who they are. That there's no way to sing to every, everybody's tastes and preferences. There's no way to do that. So um, that's why we don't have like three or four different services, flavors. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't discount churches that do that. But for us, we really reckoned with that and said, okay, let's just be who we are. And this just, you know, it just, just who we are is who we are. And then we don't have to try and kind of put on a show and try and be somebody that we're not. So I hope you understand that. For some of you who may come from a very traditional background, which I do myself. I know every baritone line for every hymn in the hymnal. <laughs> I can sing it my eyes closed. I don't even need to look. Uh, and, I, man, I cherish those times where I've grown up singing those those hymns with my family and if you notice we sing a lot of hymns we just sing it through the filter and lens of um, who these guys are so um, and it's really kind of in a lot of ways become who we are so if you're not here (laughs) if what you heard this morning maybe the volume or the style or whatever I just encourage you to get to know the hearts of the men and women behind (laughs) the leadership and I think you'll find, man, you'll find genuine worship. And you'll find that they're convinced in their own minds. And it's not, ah, we just don't care what everybody else is. It's, hey, we just want to be who we are. There's something freeing in that. And then Christ can work through us who we are. So I, I don't want to discount your background, but I just want you to understand where we're, where we're coming from in our song portion of our worship. Let me begin with prayer this morning. Lord, I just want to thank you so much for our escort into the throne room this morning. I thank you for the passion. Um, I thank you for the volume that comes from hearts that are fully convinced. I thank you so much that we are able to follow and step into uh, a sweet place where it's um, robust and rich and true. And um, just thank you so much for our song portion of our worship time and the passion that we are able to express in your direction uh, corporately. Lord, we pray that you will um, bless those times that we gather and do that. In these next few minutes, Lord, I pray that you'll bless our time that we spend in the Word. Thank you so much for this sweet Bible that we've got that shows us who you are and and um, shows us what your mind is and thoughts are and that we can understand you and know you through feasting on this book. I pray that you'll find a people feasting this morning. Uh, Lord, also I pray for uh, Commerce Community Church this morning, for um, David Ferguson and his wife Whitney. Lord, we thank you so much for their uh, partnership and their like-mindedness of this church and commerce. And thank you so much for the, the, um, the shared gospel and shared Savior that we have and shared ministry just in different contexts. We pray for their ministry and commerce, Lord, that you will... Just continue to raise up a salty, bright, aromatic people. And that um, lost sheep will be found, found sheep will be discipled, and uh, that your name will be enjoyed and renowned and famous in commerce through the ministry of C3. Pray for David and his wife, Lord. I pray that David is first and foremost uh, spending himself in ministry toward Whitney. And I pray that as he studies, that he's studying studying with her in view. Um, and just pray that she is is ministered to and blessed in a sweet way. And that their picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, that their marriage is, will be a sweet image, a sweet illustration of that, that relationship. Lord, we also pray for the baby that Whitney carries. We pray that you will watch over that, that uh, journey and uh, that you'll bring that child to uh, full term. Uh, we turn this, t- this time over to you, Lord, for your enjoyment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I need to ask, this is kind of a weird thing. We're having some technical issues this morning. Is this pulsing bothering y'all? Do you even notice that this is pulsing? The lights? Is it bothering you? I probably just totally called attention to something that you would have not even noticed. It is? Okay, well, just... 
You know, I hate hearing somebody speak when I can't see their face. So it's not like a self-aggrandizing, check me out, because I'd, I'd like to turn the lights off if I could, but um, I'd like for you to see the, the nonverbal communication, so uh, hopefully you can bear with that. Turn to John 14. That's right. That's right. We have been away from John for a few months. It's been all kind of things that have led us away between sabbatical and um, just various sermons that we've had before sabbatical and the few that we've had since then. <clears throat> this is our first time to be back in John in some time. We're in John 14. We're going to look at one verse this morning. We're looking at a lot of scripture, but one verse will be our, our source that we begin with. And uh, I want to prepare you for what you're about to hear in this verse, John 14, verse 1. I, as I'm studying it, I've been studying it for months, this, this John 14. And this first verse is this weird, com- weird combination of simplicity and difficulty. It's so simple. I'm going to read it. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's so simple that you could hear it and read it and go, oh, man, I already got that. I believe in God. Let's move on to something that I hadn't studied yet, that I haven't engaged yet. And I'm just going to prepare you. We're probably going to spend the next month on verse 1, three weeks to a month. And we could spend the next year. We could. It's not simple. And I hope that this morning, that as we climb into this, that you'll see that this, this one verse, I, I've just fallen in love with this one verse. It's not the only verse I love, but just it's just sweet. And it's going to deliver, but I want to guard you. I want to encourage you to guard yourselves from thinking, oh, this is simple, I got this. Because if you can keep yourself from that place, then you will engage some rich, life-changing heart ministering truth this morning and in the next coming weeks. This passage, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I'll share with you in a moment the context, but first I want to orient you on the word trouble. The word trouble means agitated. In this context, it means agitated. It means inward commotion, disturbed, disquieted, made restless, and stirred up. So you could put all those words in there with hearts, or with these hearts. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be agitated. Don't let your heart have an inward commotion. Don't let your heart be disturbed, disquieted, made restless, stirred up. The same word is used earlier in our Bibles in John chapter 5. And I say in your Bibles because it may not be in your Bible. John chapter 5, verse 4, there's a passage that talks about the pool of Bethesda. You don't need to turn there. I'm just introducing you to the word. It's good to see it. It's a good visual. The reason I say it may not be in your Bible is because some of our newer translations leave this little phrase out. Some of our Bibles just don't even have the verse in there. You go, well, where'd it go? The place where odd socks go. Well, it, it, it is in some early translations. And what that phrase actually means, or, the, or that verse is actually dealing with, is Jesus comes up to the man at the pool of Bethesda who's been laying lame there for 38 years. Not there the whole time, but 38 years. He's plopped off at the pool of Bethesda. The reason he's plopped off there, and the reason there are probably hundreds of people surrounding the pools of of Bethesda, is because they believed that the angels periodically would stir or agitate or trouble or disquiet, make restless the water. And the first person that plopped themselves over in the pool would get healed. So that's a good visual. The pool of Bethesda has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon, but the visual of the troubled water and the troubled heart is what these guys are dealing with. Now let me introduce you to the context so you can figure out who these guys are. The context here is we're in the final hours before Jesus goes to the cross. And if you're familiar with the book of John from this point on, it's like this big sea of red. For the next few chapters, it's a sea of red where Jesus is sharing if, if you had a few hours with your family, that's what this would be. He's sitting with his family, with his disciples, his closest group of disciples, minus Judas at this point. And he's pouring into them some sweet, sweet, robust truth. So that's the context. They're sitting here hearing this truth, but yet just just a few days earlier, they entered Jerusalem with the cheers of Jerusalem cheering for Jesus. And he's like, where's my donkey's colt? 
where my feet can drag so I'm sure I can show them what sort of Savior I'll be. And they're cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They've watched this ministry develop, and these guys, I want you to understand their context. Just imagine what it would be like if in Greenville, a messenger passed through here, a preacher, or someone with some sort of message that was so compelling that you left everything. Some of you work in building and construction. You have kind of a, a construction truck. It's got all your equipment on it. Imagine if you walked away from that truck. You said, I'm leaving it. Some of you work, walk, work in a cubicle. That might be a, a current-day version of a tax collector booth. The building truck would be a picture of, a, of, of a, a boat that some of the disciples walked away from to follow this compelling messenger. They walked away from everything. Imagine someone coming through Greenville. You leave your building truck. You leave your cubicle. You leave your warehouse. You leave your neighborhood. You leave your mommy who's bringing home the groceries and cooking it up. You leave your family that you're enjoying fellowship with week by week to go follow this compelling messenger. That's what these guys have done. They walked away from everything and cast their lot with Christ. They joined him before he was anybody. Now, we know the rest of the story. He's always been somebody. The king of kings and lord of lords. But for them, he's just this new messenger. He says, come follow me. And they walked away from everything to follow him before he had crowds following him they joined him before he had a following and as his popularity grew do you think for a moment that they didn't get caught up in it can you imagine if you left everything to go follow a compelling messenger that came through greenville and it was just you and a few other gang a few other guys but then over time thousands of people began to follow you're like man i got in on something early I made a great investment, and I followed this guy when he was nobody. I'm going to tell you, these people, uh, I, I, the, there are clues that give us a sense where their hearts were. I'll give you an example. The sons of Zebedee, James and John, their mommy came to Jesus and said, Hey, would you have James sit on one side of you and John sit on the other side? And James and John are saying, Yeah, 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 let's give us an answer, Jesus. And he said, You don't even know what you're asking for. These guys are already figuring out where they're going to sit in his court. In fact, in another parallel gospel about these, these final remaining hours, the disciples at the Lord's Supper are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in his court. Is that just ridiculous? Let me tell you, these guys, you can't imagine. I can't imagine how caught up they were in this moment. And man, we cashed in on an investment, or we participated in an investment that looks like it's going to cash I bet these boys had picked out their robes. I want denim. I, I want uh, flannel. I'll take corduroy. I want purple. Man, they already had a vision of where they're going to sit and what sort of robes they're going to wear. They watched Jerusalem cheer for him days earlier. This was a wise investment for a bunch of tax collectors and fishermen. At least it seemed to be. Some of you, I bet, can relate to something like this. Let's escort ourselves into the context and make it personal. Some of you may have been in on a risky investment that looked like it was going to cash. Looked like it's going to explode, like it's a sure thing. Some of you may have gotten in on a, on a business investment or a business venture that's blowing and going like a runaway train. Man, this couldn't fail. This is looking good, boy. I got my robe picked out. I've already figured out where I want to sit. Let's even make this more personal because some of you may have never had any sort of business venture. You don't have enough money to invest in anything. But I bet you've made this investment before where you fall in love with somebody and you think, man, it's fair winds and following seas from here on. When she speaks, the angels sing. <laughs> it's good, boy. I'm cashing in on a sweet investment. Or maybe you get a job promotion. You think, man, it's all good from here. Fair wind and following seas. I made a good investment with my time, with my effort, with my resume. Or maybe you think, man, here, we're going to cash in. I'm finally buying that home I've always wanted to have. It's looking good. Fair winds and following seas. 
we can imagine how these guys are feeling. At least try and escort yourselves into the emotions that they're feeling. And then yet here in this context, he's preparing them for bad news. Just moments earlier, he's told them, he's told them Judas is going to betray me. And Judas leaves the table. If you and a few people went to follow a compelling messenger and you spent 24 and 7 with those people and maybe the most trusted of the few of you turns out to betray the one you're following, that would leave you trouble. He was the money keeper. Likely he was the most trusted among them. And he turns out to be the one that's going to betray Christ. Man, this environment's getting trouble. It's all looking good. Jerusalem is cheering. But then a few verses later, he tells Peter, guess what, Peter? You're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, me? Yeah, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. He's also told him, he said, I'm going to a place where you can't follow me. They've been following him 24 and 7 for three years. He said, you can't follow me where I'm going now. What? I've already picked out my robe, Jesus. I've already decided where I'm going to sit. What are you talking about? This is bad news. This is a real bummer. And their hearts are troubled. And he speaks into those troubled hearts. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, I want us to eat this truth. So I'm going to do some more contextualizing for us. I'm going to personalize this for us. In five years of pastoring Crosspoint, along with the other elders, there's some things that I've seen, some trouble hearts that I've experienced personally and some trouble hearts that I've counseled and ministered to. So here's just a snapshot of some of the troubled hearts that I've engaged. Here's one. You enter into a marriage, thinking, man, fair winds and following seas. You enter into a marriage with joy and celebration only to find that there's no one on earth that can make you angrier than the one that you've committed to share your life with. I've heard about that. I have no first-hand experience in that. <laughs> but I've heard that happens. And man, there's a troubled heart that goes along with that. How about this one? Let's say you do find that one that you believe the Lord wants you to marry. You marry and you decide, man, it's time for us to have a baby only to find out that you can't. And that's a troubled heart. I've seen those hurting hearts. Or how about this? How about you can get pregnant, but the Lord takes your baby before the baby's delivered? That's a troubled heart. Man, it's looking good. You've picked out your robe. You've painted the baby room. But the Lord takes that baby before it's time or before you think it's time. Or how about this? You actually get pregnant only to inherit the troubled heart of uh, finding yourself in the worst state of depression that you've ever experienced when that baby is delivered. And you have this weird conundrum of emotions. You should be joyful and happy, but yet you're in the worst state of depression you've ever imagined or experienced. Sleep deprived, you got spit up on your shoulder, and you can smell a dirty diaper. You're thinking, man, what is this? It's a troubled heart. Or how about this? This is a heartbreaking deal. How about this? You get the courage to build a business. Leave everything, really, and start a business only to deal with the heartache of losing it. All of it. That's heartbreaking to watch. That's a troubled heart. Or how about this? How about someone that takes something from you? A criminal act. A few years ago, my, my younger brother, is a, he's a veterinarian. A few years ago, he was making a night call at my dad's animal clinic. And somebody busted in the front door with a gun. And got him and the custard, the, the, not the dog, but him and the owner on their knees. The dog wouldn't obey. He told him to get in. But him and the owner on their knees in my dad's animal clinic. Put a gun to their heads. Said, give me every bit of money and drugs you got. I mean, he was shook up for months. Troubled heart, a criminal act. Take, somebody take something from you, that hurts. That is a troubled heart. And then there's the unexplained troubled heart. Some of y'all deal with it. I deal with it periodically where you have a troubled heart and you just don't really have a good reason why, which makes it even more troubling. <laughs> why am I so doggone troubled right now? I don't have a good expl explanation. We're well acquainted with a troubled heart. Here's another one. How about we, 
follow Christ with the joy and excitement that now things will be different and life will be easier. Maybe someone didn't preach a good, quality, robust message to us in the beginning. And we think it's going to be flowery beds of ease only to find out the journey of faith is hard. And that you still deal with hard, difficult things. And you're left with a troubled heart. How about this one? This will be the last one that I'll offer. How about you find a church home as you think, man, this is it. <laughs> Fair winds and following seas. I've been looking for months and I finally cashed in. This is it, only to find that it's made up of people just like you. <laughs> that are made of the same stuff that you're made of. That are just as clay and frail and feeble and disappointing as you are. And you walk away with a troubled heart. I think we have ample versions of the troubled heart. Ample. Those are just a few that snapshots that I've got in five years of pastoring. But here the Lord tells the disciples in their specific context of three years of following this compelling messenger. And he tells us with our little versions of, and even big versions of a troubled heart. He says, let not your hearts be troubled the word i have in my notes right there is a word that i read in books all the time but i never really hear anybody say humph you ever seen that in a, in a book h-m-p-h-f-p-h-h or something i don't know how to spell it <laughs> nobody says it but you see it in books all the time humph that's what i was thinking humph man i'm neck deep in trouble i'm shepherding a people who are neck deep in trouble and our lord is speaking to guys who are neck deep in trouble and he's saying let not your hearts be troubled Humph, that's all I got to say. Humph. So the question I started asking, and the question I'm going to bounce off y'all this morning, we're going to explore here for a moment, is, is it wrong to have a troubled heart? Is there something wrong with us if we're troubled about stuff? That's the question I was asking this text, the question I'm asking this context, and I'm asking this context. Is there something wrong with having a troubled heart? If we really think about it, most of us would say yes, there must be, because we go hide and isolate ourselves when we do have a troubled heart. It might be because we don't have the energy to talk to somebody. I understand how all that, but a lot of it's shame. Man, I got a troubled heart. And in fact, I think I'll talk to my workmates before I'll talk to people that I'm walking with in my church. And my church becomes the place where I'm least authentic when it should be the place where I'm most authentic. Because I've got a troubled heart and everybody else in my church, man, they got it going on. They don't have trouble. So there must be. We must have that perception that there's something wrong with a troubled heart. But I'm asking this passage that. Is there something wrong with this? If we only had this one passage, John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, then we could possibly walk away with saying, it's a sin to have a troubled heart. He's saying, don't have one. But while one verse is completely true, one verse does not reveal the truth completely. You understand that? While one verse is completely true, and we can hug John 14.1, we have to look elsewhere to understand what he's saying in John 14.1. Let me show you three other snapshots. Turn to John 11.33. <clears throat> if you're familiar at all with John 11, we spent a man probably a year in John 11. It's the story of Lazarus. It was a really sweet time that we had corporately through this journey through John 11. In this context of this passage I'm about to read, Jesus has he's come to Bethany where Lazarus is dead and buried by this point. Mary and Martha are hacked. They're weeping. Yeah, you say they're hacked. They're not yelling at him or anything. But they are saying, if only you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus shows up there at Bethany, and Mary's crying. And here she says, in just the, in, in midway through verse 32, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, this same Jesus that tells the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled, this Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Humph. There's another one. Humph. Wait a second. Didn't you just say, let not your hearts be troubled? And the same Jesus is 
greatly troubled. And just so you know that it's not some sort of weird Greek issue, it's the same Greek word. It's the same word that's used for the pool of Bethesda. Stirred up, disturbed, an inward commotion. Now, look over at John chapter 12. I think it's on the same page. John chapter 12, verse, or the next page, John 12, 27. Here's the context. Some Greeks are brought to Jesus. Jesus talks with these Greeks. The gospel, it's a great picture that the gospel was going to the rest of the world. It's not just a Jewish thing anymore, but this, this gospel is going to be extended to the nations. And in verse 23, Philip and Andrew are bringing these guys to Jesus, and Jesus answered them. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, the hour, the final hours up to the cross is here. And listen to what happens with Jesus. In verse 27, Jesus says, Now, in this hour, is my soul troubled. Humph. The same one that says, Let not your hearts be troubled. is troubled. Now here's the next one. John 13, 21. Jesus is about to share the bad news about the betrayer that sits there at the table with him. And verse 21, he says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So this very same Jesus that says, Let not your hearts be troubled, three different occasions, is the very same thing that he's saying, Let not be. He's troubled at the news and the thought and the reality and even sharing this reality. That Judas, a guy that's walked with me for three years that I still have affection for, this Judas is going to leave the table and he's going to betray me. He's agitated, inward commotion, disturbed, disquieted, made restless, stirred up. This same Jesus that gives them the commandment is what it is. Let not your hearts be troubled. It doesn't sound like a commandment because it doesn't say thou shalt not. But in the original language, it's what's called an infinitive. Infinitive is, let not your hearts be troubled. It's a command he's giving them. He's not suggesting, hey man, I know y'all are kind of troubled about the times and what's happening. And, you know, y'all, y'all don't be upset. Don't be troubled. It's going to be all right. He's got eye contact with them and he's looking at them saying, let not your hearts be troubled. So really what he's saying here, considering the fact that he's never sinned, that this Jesus never did anything wrong, and yet he had three occasions of him having a troubled heart, and this commandment, let not your hearts be troubled, we have to synthesize those. Remember one verse, while the completely true does not reveal the truth completely? We let these other verses help us understand what he's saying here. What he's commanding them here is not, you shall not, never, ever have a troubled heart. He's saying, don't ever, ever live with a troubled heart. He's saying, thou shalt not keep a troubled heart, is what he's saying. It's not a commandment never to be troubled, because we just went through this thing, this neck-deep sea that we're in, where we see trouble all the time. And we're trying to climb into their context and imagine the trouble that they're experiencing. It's not a sin to be troubled, but it's a sin to live there. It's disobedience to live with the troubled heart. And that's what he's saying to them. And here's the beauty, that as he gives them this commandment, thou shalt not live with a troubled heart, he gives them a solution. He gives them a remedy. It's the rest of the passage. His solution is the only solution for the troubled heart. Take every single one of those scenarios that we introduced before. Climb into the scenario that we're we're imagining here in John 14, where they picked out their robes. The only solution for what they're about to see for this Lord that that they followed for three years is going to be nailed to a cross, humiliated. The one that just days before all of Jerusalem is cheering for. The only solution to reckon with that troubled heart, the only solution to reckon with the troubled heart of some sort of crime, some sort of loss, some sort of difficulty, is to believe in God and believe also in me. Period. That's what I was talking about when I was saying, man, there's such a danger. Oh, that's simple. I got that. Maybe you don't. If you're saying that, I would argue that you don't have it. You don't got that. Emphasis for bad English. You don't got that.
gives them a solution, and it's the only solution for a troubled heart, is Godward belief. And if you're thinking, man, I already believe in him, what else you got? Then I'm going to offer to you that you're not believing in him. In order to understand what this belief is, this Godward belief, what I want to do this Sunday and next, this was going to be a single Sunday sermon, but it's just too much. So what we're going to do this Sunday is we're going to look at the shading around belief. What belief in God isn't. And then next Sunday we're going to engage what belief in God is. So just imagine a picture of some sort of image. Next week we're going to crayon, crayon, crayola color the inside of the picture. Today we're going to shade the outside. And what belief in God isn't. And between the two of those we'll be able to discern. Do we have this figured out? Do we already have this? So let's start first. I have three things that I want to bring to you this morning. That belief in God, Godward belief is not. Here's the first one. Godward belief is not believing in yourself. This may be more common to us than you realize. I, as I was preparing this point, a couple things came to my mind, two things, and they're both associated with graduations. The first one is associated with my high school graduation. 1985, Alexandria Senior High School. And somebody gave me a card with this poem on it. It's called Invictus. Anybody familiar with this poem? Invictus. The guy that wrote it is a guy named William Ernest Henley. He was born in 1849. And here's what he wrote. Listen to this. Remember, the point here is belief in God. Godward belief is not believing in yourself. Listen to this poem. It says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Man, I'm going to tell you what. When I was a high school senior about to head off to A&M, going to go into cadet corps, I'm reading that, and I'm like, roar! <laughs> Man, that resonates with me, boy. I like that. I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my own soul. Roar! I like that. But man, what that, that little poem, that seemingly innocent, innocuous poem does, is it points to you being the Savior. I just want to point out the guy that wrote this, William Ernest Henley, born in 1849, that he died in 1903. I'm going to say that again. The captain of his own soul died in 1903. Is that, that's just ironic to me. Why would I live by something that's written by a dude that's dead and decaying? I want to live by something that's written by somebody who's alive. Who conquered that thing that took William Ernest Henley, the captain of his own soul. He's not the captain of his own fate. While it makes me roar, it's not true. If you roar when you hear something like that, that's believing in yourself. And that's not believing in God. You can't do both. Here's the other thing I thought about. This was my high school graduation. That one, Invictus. Here's my college graduation. Somebody gave me a, a book when I graduated college, written by Dr. Seuss. For real. I bet some of y'all may have gotten this book when you graduate from something. Uh, it's just kind of a good gift for that sort of art. We think it's a good gift. It, it's titled, Oh, the Places You'll Go. Okay, here's how it goes. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll read excerpts. But think, remember, as I'm going along, belief in God, Godward belief, is not believing in yourself. Listen to what it says. Oh, the places you'll go. Congratulations, today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off and away. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know. And you are the guy who will decide where you go. I like Dr. Seuss, but that doesn't reckon with the book of James. 
if the Lord wills it, we'll do this or that. That doesn't reckon with my Bible. And when things start to happen, don't worry, don't stew, just go right along. You'll start happening too. Oh, the places you'll go. You'll be on your way. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to high heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you'll top all the rest. Just excerpts. You'll come to a place where the streets are not marked. Some windows are lighted, but mostly they're darked. A place you could sprain both your elbow and chin. Do you dare stay out? Do you dare to go in? How much can you lose? How much can you win? He's talking about going to a waiting place is what he calls it. The waiting place is just for people who are waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go, or the phone to ring, the snow to snow, or waiting around for a yes or a no, waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone's just waiting. But no, no, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all that waiting and staying. You'll find the bright places where boom bands are playing. Oh, the places you'll go. There's fun to be done. There's points to be scored. There are games to be won. And the magical things you can do with the ball will make you the winningest winner of all. Fame. <laughs> this is the fame. You'll be famous as famous can be with the whole wide world watching you win on TV. <laughs> okay, let's build that into our kids. Except when they don't, because sometimes they won't. I'm afraid that sometimes you'll play lonely games too. Games you can't win because you'll play against you. He goes on. I'm almost done. <coughs> Excuse me. Indulge me. But on you will go, though, though the weather be foul. On you will go, though your enemies prowl. On you will go through the hack and cracks howl, though the hack and cracks howl. Onward up many a frightening creek, though your arms may get sore and your sneakers may leak. On and on you will hike, and I know you'll hike far and face up to your problems, whatever they are. You'll get mixed up, of course, as you already know. You'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go. So be sure when you step, step with care and great tact. And remember that life's a great balancing act. Almost done. Just never forget to be dexterous and deft. And never mix up your right foot with your left. And you will succeed. Yes, you will indeed. 93, 98 and three quarters percent guaranteed. Kid, you'll move mountains. It's got another paragraph left that along the same lines. That's the same message as Invictus. It seems innocuous, seems cute and funny. But those sort of books, those sort of poems, when we connect with them and we resonate with them and we say, yes, roar. Those things build into you to believe in yourself. And we can tell our kids that. Believe in yourself, man. You can accomplish anything. You can take on anything by yourself if only you believe in yourself enough so when Invictus gets cancer or when Dr. Seuss's wife leaves him I don't know that that happened I'm just saying for example <laughs> when Invictus and Dr. Seuss meet a troubled heart what do they do? they withdraw they isolate because they believe in themselves they weather it until maybe they'll exit the other side of the trial and they go it alone because remember, they roared at that poem. Man, that's, that's my poem. <laughs> that's just who I am. Roar. I got a troubled heart, and I'm going to believe in myself. Turn to a couple passages in Proverbs. I'm going to show you a few things. Remember, believing in God is not believing in yourself. Turn to Proverbs chapter, Proverbs chapter 28. Verse 26. <clears throat> Believing in God is not believing in yourself. This is no small issue. Before I read this passage, I'll share with you, back in John chapter 10, when we were preaching through the, the Good Shepherd section, where Jesus says, I'm the Good Shepherd, we began to get acquainted with sheep and how they operate, and just like Jesus, his illustrations are so robust and perfect. We learned that, that the mature sheep was not one that was wise in the ways of wolves. and It's funny how they all end up W's. Not wise in the wiles of the woods. Dr. Seuss is rubbing off. The wise sheep was the one that was more dependent on the shepherd. How about that? It's not a wisdom in and of yourselves. It's a wisdom that, man, I better stick close to the shepherd. It's a dependence. That's where wisdom comes from. So, and actually, you're getting smaller in that, not bigger. Listen to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. 
But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. The nation of Israel was great at trusting in themselves. What I did is I did a study in the Bible where Israel is trusting in themselves, and what I found is they trusted in their works, they trusted in their walls, they trusted in their treasures, and they trusted in their beauties. They thought because God chose us, man, we're beautiful. We can trust in all that. They trusted in their heritage. They trusted in their lineage. And while trusting in all those things, they didn't trust in God. And it's possible to trust all those things that are about you and never trust in God. Judges chapter 21 verse 25 captures the character of the nation of Israel during one of the darkest periods of the nation of Israel, the book of Judges. It ends, the very last sentence in the book of Judges is, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Listen to this progression in Proverbs. I'll I'll share with you where I am, but it's going to be a machine gun. So you won't be able to follow me. Chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. That doesn't sound like Invictus. It doesn't sound like Dr. Seuss. It doesn't sound like those seemingly innocuous things that are poured into us. This says that you're a fool in your own eyes. You think you got it all figured out by yourself? You're a fool. Chapter 21, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Chapter 26, verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Verse 12. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him, Invictus. Verse 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. That sounds like almost like an elder board to me. I shared with you a few weeks ago, there's a wisdom that's greater than any single one of us on the elder board. Let's read that verse. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Times with the elders have sat down with a guy that thinks he got it all figured out. We're thinking, dude, none, no single one of us has it all figured out. It's wise in his own eyes, believing in yourself. That's what's going on there. Chapter 30, verse 12, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. However Clint Eastwood or Rambo-like it may be to believe in yourself, and to roar at Invictus, or to memorize the places you will go. It's not very Christian. The Christian that's going to believe Godward is not believing in himself. The Christian who's believing Godward is pretty doggone dependent, and pretty doggone needy, and needs each other, and doesn't think he has it all figured out, and is not wise in his own eyes. That's the fool. Godward belief is not believing in yourself. The second thing that Godward belief is not is Godward belief is not believing in stuff. Turn to Isaiah chapter 44. It's page 605 of your pew Bible. Excuse me. I was reading with the family. We've been reading through the Bible together, and when we got to this chapter, I just fell in love with this chapter because it's such a great image. God basically chumps the nation of Israel. He makes them look like the biggest goobers because they're worshiping things and because they're placing their faith and their trust in things that they can touch and see instead of the invisible God. And listen to what he says here. This is, he chumps them and he can chump you too. Listen to what he says. He's talking in verse 12. He says, The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. Remember where I'm going here in this next one. The first one was that belief in Godward belief is not believing in yourself. This next one is Godward belief is not believing in stuff. Listen. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. What you need to see there in the ironsmith is see agency. He's walking around in his welding shop or whatever ironsmith shop. There's a piece of iron. I think I'll beat on that piece of iron and shape it into something. With his strong arm, he's making decisions. And now let's look at the carpenter. 
The carpenter is like the ironsmith. He's making decisions too. He stretches out a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Let's go and develop that more. Listen. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. He's making decisions. I'm going to do something with that piece of wood. Or I'm going to plant a seed and let that tree grow. And I'm going to make a decision about what I'm going to do with that piece of wood. And then that tree that he cuts down, it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. So the wood is just kindling. The wood is just kindling. And then it goes on to say, also, here's where it really gets funny. Also, he makes a god and worships it. (laughs) Wait a second. This man, the ironsmith with a strong arm, would be like making a piece of iron and worshiping it. The carpenter who planted the doggone tree in the first place cuts it down. Half of it he uses for wood to make a fire to cook his food or to warm himself. The other half he worships? He makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. He's chomping these dudes. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha! Just envision. He's making decisions. He's having this conversation. He's in charge. Aha, I've warmed myself. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, wood, for you are my god. (laughs) He totally made them out to be a bunch of goobers. He embarrassed them. And you know, that's a great picture of what we do when we believe in stuff. When we have a troubled heart, insert the problems, all the problems that we thought about before, and we look to anything, wood, iron, money, food, shopping, clothing, houses, cars, stuff. It's just kindling. It's just kindling. Let it warm you, but don't worship it. When you look to it to medicate the troubled heart, that's what you're doing. You're worshiping it instead of the God of it. You're worshiping kindling. I love that image, man. He chumps them. And he chumps those of us, all of us maybe, to some degree, who look to stuff or things when we have a troubled heart. I do it. I'm going to confess. I mean, it won't be the first time I confess things. For me... What stuff I usually look to is I like to buy something or eat something. <laughs> Best is to eat something you buy. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, when I have a troubled heart, I can't tell you how many Fridays and Saturdays I spend where I'm like, I'm studying or something, and I'm like in the kitchen. Like, what's in the kitchen, man? What can I eat when I ought to be praying? Because what I'm, t- I'm troubled about, y'all. I'm troubled about whether you're about to engage this message that God has for His people or whether you're going to be like, man, what time is, the, what time is lunch? That's what I'm troubled about. So my troubled heart, oftentimes, <laughs> I medicate it with food. And that just makes it worse. Because <laughs> you get fat and you're like, man, I'm really troubled now. <laughs> Cardioatherosclerosis kicking in. I really got a troubled heart. Man, it's ridiculous. That's as ridiculous to run to food or to run to shopping or to run to buy something as it is this dude worshiping something that he carved out of a piece of wood that he planted. (laughs) Isn't that ridiculous? Believing in God is not believing in stuff. It's not turning to those things to medicate the troubled heart because the only thing that medicates and cures the troubled heart is the God of the wood, the God of the iron, the God of all the stuff. So belief in God is not believing in stuff. The third thing, this is the least obvious or the most discreet. It means the same thing. This is the hardest one. 
but it can be the most dangerous one. Belief in God is not believing in yourself. It's not believing in stuff. And the third thing, belief in God is not believing in memes. Belief in God is not believing in memes. Turn to Amos chapter 4. I really, really, really hope that y'all engage these next few minutes because, like I said, this is the least obvious, most discreet, and maybe the most damaging. Where I'm going in this next thing is where the nation of Israel went. The nation of Israel, instead of worshiping the God of the law, the Pharisees, in essence, began to worship the law. Instead of placing their faith in the God of Abraham... They placed their faith in Abraham. And it's easy to do. Let me show you what happened. Amos chapter 4. I'll give you a little bit of context. This book of Amos, one of my favorite books of the Bible, written by, or it's a prophetic passage, a prophetic letter um, from a guy named Amos. He was a shepherd in Tekoa. It's a place in Judah. But he was charged with going to Israel and preaching to Israel. And speaking truth into their context. And basically the nation of Israel was rich, but yet they weren't taking care of the poor. The the, the nation of Israel was also very religious. Yet their hearts weren't in their religion. And this passage right here is so telling. Chapter 4, verse 4. Amos writes to them, or he, he may have preached it and written it, I don't know what, it doesn't matter. He says, Come to Bethel, Israel. And transgress. Come to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Let me give you a little bit of insight into what that's talking about. Bethel and Gilgal were sort of pilgrimages. Religious pilgrimages. Gilgal. I'll just tell you specifically about Gilgal. The reason Gilgal was really special for the nation of Israel, there's some interesting things happened there, but probably the most prominent thing that happened there is whenever Joshua led the nation of Israel through the Jordan on dry land, and they came into the promised land, the first thing that God had them do was circumcise all the males. And where he did that was at Gilgal. And Gilgal means mountain of foreskin. I know you really were wondering about that. <laughs> but it became a pilgrimage. It became a pilgrimage for the nation of Israel to go to Gilgal and to worship God there. But the problem is they worship the pilgrimage and they worship the location more than they worship the God of the pilgrimage and the God of the location. And that's why he's saying, go to Bethel and transgress. Go to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Get your pilgrimage on. Get your religion on. And multiply your sin. You are sinning in the means. The means have become the God. Religion, a good thing. Going to a place where something awesome happened and enjoying the God of the moment. Good thing. Bad thing, going to the place and worshiping the relics. That's been a, that's been a history for the church over the years. Or worshiping the location. I went to Jerusalem a couple months ago and saw people worshiping the stone that Jesus supposedly died on or was buried on. They may not have been worshiping the stone, but they're kissing it. And they're praying and touching it. Man, it looked like worship to me. That's a good thing gone bad. And that's what these guys were guilty of. Look over on the next page, chapter 5. Here's the character of their worship. I want you to see this. This I'm telling you, it's the most discreet, it's the least obvious, maybe the most dangerous. Believing in the means rather than the God of the means. And here's the character of their worship in verse 18. God says through Amos, Woe to you, Israel, who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. It's not going to be a good thing for you, Israel, when God comes. Or when when the Son of Man comes. It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? And gloom with no brightness in it? Here's why it's darkness for the nation of Israel. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Man, they're getting their religion on. They have assemblies, they have feasts, but their hearts were far from Him. 
They were worshiping the means, the event itself, rather than the God of the event. The God, rather than the God of the assembly, the God of the feast, they're worshiping the feast. And he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not even look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. They're even singing Godward. But they're not singing Godward. Maybe they were too focused on their harmony. Am I knocking harmonizing? No, man, knock yourself out. But I hope when you're singing Godward, you're not focused more on your harmony and how you sound and whether or not you like the music rather than you're enjoying the God of the music and the truths that are being exposed and enjoyed. You see how easy this is to happen to all of us? He says, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, Listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This last one's hard. Believing Godward is not believing in the means. These guys believe in the religion more than they believed in the God of the religion. They believed in the law more than they believed in the God of the law. We can believe in the church more than we believe in the God of the church. And we can leave every Sunday dissatisfied because it just wasn't quite what I wanted. Instead, because you didn't step into the throne room and enjoy the God of the moment. We didn't do this enough. Hmm. It was too loud. Hmm. We were in the throne room this morning. If you leave with those thoughts, I would argue you didn't go in here and go, God, you're incredible. Did you worship? Because when we leave there that way, then what's on our conversation and our lips over lunch is not, oh, the music was too loud. I didn't like this. They didn't do this enough. They didn't do that enough. You're talking about, man, isn't God incredible? Isn't the cure for a troubled heart sweet? Because you stepped into the throne room. You see the difference? He says, get the noise of your songs out of my ears. I hate your feasts, your assemblies. You get your church on, yet you do not enjoy the God of the church, the God of the moment. Essentially, what he's saying to these guys. And the reality is, whatever we do, whatever proceeds that does not proceed from faith, is sin. And you can be here this morning in sin. You can go get your church on and be in sin because you're here for all the wrong reasons. I can preach in sin. If I'm preaching and I'm thinking that the success, which I use that, it, it's a garden. It's hard to quantify success. The success of the sermon will be in how attentive you are and how, how much you smile and how good I communicate. Where's my faith in that? It's on me. Man, there's something libera liberating about putting my faith on Him and putting my belief on Him. It gets me out of the equation. I love believing in God, not in Ben. Or believing even in the means. You can actually worship preaching. Here's some lesser examples. If you can sin in religion, religious things, here's some lesser examples. If you can sin in a thousand mile pilgrimage to Gilgal, you can sin in a three mile trip to Cross Point Fellowship. And you can sin in a two mile trip to the doctor's office. Am I saying going to the doctor is a sin? No. Please go get your medication. I'm so full of allergy medicines. Anytime you see me, I believe in medicine. <laughs> but I believe in the God of the medicine more than the medicine. It's just a means. It's just a tool. I believe in counseling. I shared that a few weeks ago. But I believe in the God of the counseling more than I believe in the counseling. I believe in friends. Man, I love friends. But friends don't make a very good savior. I believe in friends, but I believe in the God of the friends more than the friends. I believe in my spouse. I love my wife, man, but she doesn't make a very good Savior. She's a means to minister to me that God has used to minister to me, to encourage me, but I'm not going to believe in the means. I'm going to believe in the God of the means. There's a difference, distinct difference. It's an important difference. It makes all the difference in the world between worship being good, between faith 
and transgression. Where last Sunday came from, if you were here last Sunday, you're like, why did you preach on that? Last Sunday came from this point. It's not believing in government. If you were here last Sunday, you'd think, man, and, and you read partisanship or passion about government. I'm not completely disinterested because I, I recognize that it's a means, but it, it's a means. I'm not going to put my faith in government no matter who's leading. Am I going to obey it and honor it and respect it? I hope so. But it makes for pretty resilient people. Whoever's in office, whatever's going on, even if you're troubled over about, about some decisions that could be made or could have been made, we're resilient people. Because our faith is not in the means. We're believing in the God of the means. The God of the government. None of these things make very good saviors. And they, I guarantee it, won't cure a troubled heart. I don't care what government is in it or what party or any of that stuff is in office. They won't cure a troubled heart. I don't care what doctor you go to. You, and I, I'm not discounting medication. I hope I emphasize that. But it won't cure the troubled heart that they're talking about here. I don't care what counseling you go to. God may use any of these things as a means to minister to you, but your faith needs to be squarely planted on the God of those things. It's a discreet nuance there, but it's an important one. It's the difference between worship and sin. These things are just tools in God's hands. Use them, but don't believe in them. Godward belief is not believing in the good things that he may use to help us. It's believing in the God of those things. When you consider how prone we are to believing in ourselves or our stuff or even our means, I'm thankful for this simple but difficult truth. I'm thankful that in the remaining hours that Jesus had with the disciples before he went to the cross, that this is really kind of how it kicked off. Because before this, it's been Lord's Supper. It's been foot washing. It's been, here's my betrayer. It's been, here, you will deny me. But now it's, okay, guys, hunker down. I'm going to pour some truth in you. The first words out of his mouth. Let not your hearts be troubled. Thou shalt not stay troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Simple, but difficult. What I've done today, hopefully, is shade around belief. Next week, we're going to color in belief. What it is. Today, we considered what it isn't. Next week, we're going to eat what it is. Let me pray. Lord, you are so patient with us. You are so uh, graceful and gentle with us to continue to walk with us even when we're so misguided. We are so prone to putting our faith in everything but you. Lord, we pray that over time and through sermons like this, through engagements with the Word, that you will teach us to put our trust and our faith in the invisible, immortal King of the ages. Lord, we pray even that what is introduced here in John chapter 14, verse 1, that we will engage our Savior, the visible God of the ages. And that we'll come out the other side of this study of the next three weeks or four weeks with a better understanding of the simple difficulty and a more intentional, dependent pursuit in that simple charge. Lord, I pray for this people that we will dine on what's been engaged here. That the conversation over lunch will not be about volume, will not be about attire, will not be about these small marginal issues, but they will be about this incredibly rich, robust gospel that none of us deserves. I pray that our conversation over lunch will be about how amazing it is that you sat with man, And had dinner 
and spoke truth into man and that you had others record what was shared and that here 2,000 years later that we can engage this living message and that it will shape us today. Lord, I pray for shepherds, men and, and single moms, functional shepherds that are leading families that we'll leave here today with, with a seriousness about this journey. And that we'll even take a look at ourselves and even wonder, have we placed our faith in the means of baptism, of church attendance, of giving, of all these things that we can place our faith and our trust in and never place our faith in you? Teach us to purify the trajectory of our faith that it will land squarely on you and on our Lord's finished work. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship in song.